Welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. So I'm thankful, by the way, my parents brought me to church as a child. The sound I remember hearing more than any other, and it was always this. still. And then I would flip to the back of the Bible and I would, I would go to Revelation and there's this huge crowd of people, right, and worshiping God. And they would say, we're worshiping God for eternity. And I would think, I have to be still for eternity? I have to wear a clip-on tie for all of the rest of eternity? Little you think that Christianity is about the rules. It's about holding still. It's about being a certain way. Of course, you're young, and, and I understand that, and you're, you're a kid, and you don't really get it yet. But there's this attitude of, the, the, it's all about the rules. Is the question today, as we're in the third week of the Reason for God uh, study, and the, the books are over here on the tables, if you want to pick one up before you go. As we're in the third week of this, isn't Christianity all about rules? We see it as, um, it's a bit of a rhetorical question, and I understand that. Um, but it's a question that's being asked in our culture in so many ways. Of, uh, isn't just Christianity about being a certain way and, and, and following a certain thing and following these rules? Obviously, for those of us that are in the room that grew up in church, we know the answer to that is an emphatic No. It's not about wearing an itchy robe for all of eternity. It's not about wearing your clip-on tie forever and, and walking a line, so to speak. It's not necessarily about that. Keller points out in the book there's a duality to human nature. There's, a, as he says, a Jekyll and Hyde, as, as based on the classic novel, to hum, just to humanity. That, as you know, Jekyll and Hyde, that Jekyll uh, accidentally, or maybe me, uh, released the evil side of who he is, that deep down... The id, if you will, the, the hide comes out and it causes all sorts of mayhem and, and disaster. And he's sort of making the connection in the book that there's no amount of rules or law that can fix that issue in humanity. So it's not really as Christianity about rules. The answer, of course, is no. And as Hyde and Jekyll and Hyde, um, the Jekyll seems to say throughout the novel, he will say things that sound like, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? So is Christianity about rules? Of course the answer is no. Jesus was not about rules. We get back to really, what, is, what was Jesus about? Was he all about rules? No, he was in the business of rescue, not rules. Rescue over rules. And one of the greatest stories, I mean, so many stories of Jesus are about rescue. But there's one that I thought of immediately in Mark chapter 5. And we're going to read, we're going to read big, big chunks of the Bible today. Is that okay? I know you're in church, so you're like, duh, it's okay to are in chunks of the Bible. But this story of this woman, it just, it's so much about rescue and rules and the tension of these two things. And it's Mark chapter 5. We're going to read it off the screen. Jesus got into the boat and went back into the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, My little daughter is dying, said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. And I love this. Jesus went with him. 
He just goes. He doesn't say, well, I don't know about that. Have you completed this class or something? No, he just goes. He just, he went. And all the people followed, hundreds, maybe thousands of people follow, crowding around him. So Jesus is on the way to perform a miracle, to heal a sick little girl. In this crowd, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. And we're going to stop there. Because at this point, this woman, not only is she poor from trying to fix her issue and, and the constant hemorrhaging and bleeding, she's seen as an outcast. She probably lives alone. She's filthy. She's dirty. She's seen as unclean in the Jewish world. And we're going to get to that. She wouldn't even be allowed to enter the temple at all to offer a sacrifice. If anyone even touches her, they're seen as unclean. She's a complete and total outcast. And then it goes on to say, she had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And there in her desperation, in her brokenness, in her touching, an unclean woman reaching to touch a rabbi, which is unheard of, immediately the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once the healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? Someone asked me earlier before we started, why did Jesus ask, who touched me? And that's such a good question. Because I think on a spiritual level, he knew something was happening. The spirit was moving. His disciples asked what we would ask. Look at the crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. He's searching the crowd. Let me also say this. When you read the book of Mark, Mark is the oldest uh, gospel. It's the first one that was written. We know that because Matthew and Luke have a whole sections of Mark contained within Matthew and Luke. So we know that Matthew and Luke borrowed from Mark and then added their own other things to it. But we know that Mark is the original gospel. And Mark is a historian of the first order. Because when you read this, he had to go back and interview this woman. He doesn't know her thoughts as he's watching it happen, but he goes and seeks her out and records what, it, what, what was going on in her life. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell at her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, I love this, he doesn't say woman, he doesn't say girl, he calls her a daughter. A woman that he had probably never met, didn't know who she was, but he calls her daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. So Jesus is breaking a rule. Leviticus 15 says that, and Jesus knew, he probably memorized the Torah. He memorized the first five books of the Bible. He knew what Leviticus said. And he still touched an unclean woman and healed her. Or she more appropriately touched his robe. And what she probably touched was, it's, these, it's almost like a stole that a Methodist elder would wear. It's, it's a long thing with these tassels on the end. She probably reached and touched one of those. A few verses later, if you read the rest of Mark, Jesus then goes to the servant's house where the woman, the girl, little girl that was sick, she actually dies. And Jesus goes and touches a dead body, which was forbidden for a rabbi to do. And Jesus still lays hands on her and raises her from the dead. But see, the point of all this is that whether Jesus pursues you or, he, or we pursue him, it's clear that Jesus is about rescue and not about rules. 
I'm going to read the story of the prodigal son, which many of you have heard before. But there's a spin on this that until many years ago, I never caught at the time. I was a prodigal in my teens and early 20s. I was a prodigal. I know people look at pastors and think you were born in the church and you came out of the womb singing worship songs or something and serving communion to people. That's not how it was. Not my story. So the prodigal son story is like, yeah, I'm the one, I was the one feeding pigs. But there's another side to this story. We're going to read it. Luke 15. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Talk about rude, okay? I want what I want now. I'm not waiting until you die. So his father agreed, his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, Las Vegas. And there, he wasted all his money, Las Vegas, on wild living, Las Vegas. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs on a Jewish audience that would not be lost, right? Because pigs are unclean and you're feeding the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. He's wealthy, he had hired servants. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, this is the part I connected with as a younger man. I was still a long way off. His father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He's searching the horizon for his lost son. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Beautiful picture of the love of God, right? Beautiful God pursuing you, pursuing you in your waywardness. How, how glorious is that? But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost and now he is found. I, this is a good memory verse. So the party began. Isn't that fun? <laughs> verse 24. Memorize that. So the party began. We celebrate. Here comes the wayward son. We're happy. But meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. While he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. We tend to forget about this other son. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father was killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he re replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. In all that time, you never gave me even one young goat. How many times have you asked your parents for a young goat? And they didn't, they didn't fulfill for a feast. And when a son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and he is found. I'm reading the whole story because essentially there's two types of sin at work here. There's, there's an overt rebellion, just waywardness, easy to call out, easy to see. But Jesus is also pointing out a self-righteousness, 
a rule-based mentality that says, I'm a little bit better than you. How could you possibly do that? And I was the one that was deserving of everything, and it's pride. One breaks the rules, the other is trying to keep the rules, and they're both in need of grace. They both messed up. But Jesus is telling the story that I have come for rescue for both, not rules. Religion says, I messed up and my dad is going to kill me. The gospel, the good news is, I messed up, I need to call my dad. It's this tension of religion and grace, rules and rescue, that none of us are righteous. No amount of rule following is going to save us. We need to call our dad. If it was all about rules, none of us could fulfill it all perfectly. And Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans. This tension of law versus grace that still comes up today. And he seems to say two things that don't really go together. Romans 6.14, he says this. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well, we know that as Christians. We don't go to the temple in Jerusalem. It's gone. Uh, We live under the freedom of grace. A few lines down, Romans 7, Paul writes this. Romans. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God. Not the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. Well then... Am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known the covering, coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. I've heard people say this over the years. Well, we don't really need the Ten Commandments because I know stealing is wrong. I don't need it inscribed on ten on tablets of stone. I love that, that, that uh, scene from the history of the world with Mel, Mel Brooks and he has 15 commandments. Have you seen this? And he, he goes, I have the commandment, 15 commandments of God. And he drops one. Oh, 10. 10 commandments. <laughs> People say, well, I don't need the 10 commandments to tell me that I'm wrong. But actually we do. That the standard points to the fact that at our nature, we are perpetual standard breakers. So he's saying that the law does serve a purpose. That yes, Jesus came to fulfill the law, but he also said that I, uh, that not one jot or tittle, he's referring to that way the vowels and things were written in Hebrew, not one bit of the Hebrew, the law, is going to pass away. It will not pass away. It still stands, but it serves a purpose to point to our need for grace. Now it's important though to segment out the idea of rules for the believer and rules for the unbelieving world. In our postmodern society, we're confusing them together all the time. And what I mean by this is, that, is this. Many, many people in our culture hear standards of Christian behavior, purity, uh, sanctification we call, the working out of our faith. An unbelieving world will hear these things and say, oh, it's all about rules, right? And when you throw that in front of an unbelieving world, of course they're, not, they're going to reject it. Of course they're not going to understand. And I was the same way when I was younger. I remember before I got, uh, we got married, I was buying um, groomsmen gifts. And I didn't have a ton of money. And a friend of mine who was not a Christian, he, he was like, oh, what are you going to get for all your groomsmen? Bibles. You know, because I was a pastor, a young pastor at the time. And he was just kind of jabbing me a little bit. But there's this, this, you know, he's... 
there's a, when you put stuff in front of the world, I don't think they're totally going to get it, and that's okay. But essentially, sanctification, living out of our faith, uh, some of the, the rules are, you know, trying to live a good life, a Christ-centered life. That's in-house stuff. I think it's important to make that distinction. And all too often, churches or other people will go out and, you know, picket things and shout people down and tell them to go in the hell. Like, that's not going to work. How is that appealing? How is that, how is that you know, it's not, it's not anything about a relationship with God. I mean, talk about putting the cart ahead of the horse. It's sort of like on the first date with somebody, and you say, well, if we're going to get, we're going to fall in love, we've got to follow these rules, and then we'll be in love. Like, it doesn't work that way. It's the same way with our relationship with God. No one falls in love with someone by following rules. All that stuff may come later in terms of, but the difference is you want to do it. As Christians, we want to live holier lives because we love God. It's not just the rule, it's because we do it out of an offering of worship of our very self. And as Wesleyans, as Methodist Christians, there were standards of holiness for in-house stuff. Outside of here, we don't need to hold anybody to anything because we're just as much recipients of grace as they are, as other people are. Uh, we love because he first loved us. Like it, but in-house, as Wesleyans, holiness was rooted in Scripture. That's where it begins. And it's lived out in community. It's lived out in small groups, in your Sunday school class, in, in how you, and some of you meet in homes and journey groups, things like that. It's awesome. That's how, that's how our sanctification is lived out. And this, this life of living for Christ, it's, it's, it's facilitated by means of grace. And what John Wesley meant by that was these are the mediums by which the grace of God is communicated. That's what he means. We don't use that term very much anymore, means. It's more like a vessel or medium by which God communicates. So these are some of the ways that we do that. The public worship of God. Pat yourself on the back. You're here today. You're trying to go, don't pat yourself on the back, then you'd be boastful. You're here today to grow close to God. The ministry of the word, just by hearing the word, um, hearing the Bible, reading it on your own. That's the way you're growing in your holiness. Obviously, communion, that's the way we get close to God. Family, private prayer, searching the scriptures, fasting, abstinence, just, just relinquishing ourselves of things sometimes. These are the means by which we can grow closer to God. And all of these should be expressed in solidarity with the poor. It should be lived out with the poor. Not just to be withheld to ourselves, but live it out with the poor. And the Wesley brothers took holiness, you could call following rules, but they, it's, it's a sanctification style. They were so serious about this. Wesley was almost OCD, I'm serious. If you read his journals, like he, he would list out the sins he committed that day. He would just write them all down. Have you done that lately? He would just sit down and be like, I did this today, this today. And he would just, that's the way his mind was. I mean, that's, that's a bit of an extreme example, but they were very serious about holiness. But they were so serious, they almost got lynched multiple times. People would come to their house and try and pull them out and kill them. Because they were accused of preaching a rules-based righteousness. Of course they weren't. It was just a, re a realization that we need faith and works. As James says, faith without works is dead. All that to say, if you lay works of righteousness before an unbelieving world, they may look like rules, but they're not. It's the outworking of the faith of the Christian person. 
But we all started somewhere on the scale. Now, a lot of people could, who think that Christianity is all about rules, they could say something like this. I know you've heard this. I don't need religion. I'm just going to be a good person, right? We've heard this. Maybe you've thought this. This is a, essentially a false gospel that I can be good enough to go to heaven. That if I'm a good enough person, I'm good. And this is essentially a rule-based, ironically, it's a rule-based view of religion. Like if I follow these rules and I'm good, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. Some people, I've met these people, they'll say the idea of repentance, sin, um, like they don't want to feel bad about themselves. So they'll say, I'm saved from what? I'm a good person. Don't guilt me into believing in God. I'm, I'm not very religious, but I'm, I'm good. And that's the most important thing. But is that actually true? Think of it this way. A, a, here's a story of a poor widow and a son. Let's say the poor widow, she grew up with her son. She teaches him how she wants him to live, to tell the truth, to work hard, to be honest, to be virtuous, to help the poor. And he is. The little boy grows up to be a good person. And she does not have a lot of money, but she does what she can. And she puts him through college. And imagine when this little boy graduates from college as a, as a man. And he never speaks to her again. He never sends her a Christmas card. Doesn't visit her. Doesn't even answer the phone when she calls. Doesn't speak to his mother. But he lives as his mother taught him to live. Virtuously. Generous. Kind. Charitable. Would you say that was acceptable? No. By living a good life, but you neglect the relationship with the one to whom you owed everything. Would that be commendable? It would not. In the same way, God created you. And you owe him everything. And, and if you do not live for him, but say, I want to live a good life, it's not enough. We all owe a debt that must be paid, but we can't pay it on our own merit. And this is where grace comes in. Grace is what we crave most when our guilt is exposed, right? When you're caught doing something, you're like, oh man, I hope I get let off the hook for this. Grace is what we crave when we know we need rescue. We need rescue and not rules. Religion says to you, do, or your dad is going to kill you. Grace of Jesus says, done. It's done. I need to call my dad. Grace frees you from the illusion that you're free to live autonomous lives and just be a good person. No, it's not how it works. On the clo my closing, I'm reading more Bible today. He's like, I'm a sermon. Quit apologizing for this. I'm a preacher. But Paul, Paul gets crazy honest in Romans 7. And if you go back and read this, he's an apostle. And he's just, he's just laying out his heart. He's an apostle. And he writes stuff like this. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. Have you felt this way before? I know I have. 
For I want to do what is right, but I don't. Instead, I do what I hate. I mean, he's just getting real here. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. It's showing me what I'm doing is wrong. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. I know I felt this way before. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Jekyll and Hyde right here. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Stop right there. Go back. Too many people hear, answer this question and they stop there. They hear that and they think, that's it. Who will free me from this life of sin and death? That's the question of humanity throughout the echoes of the ages. Who will free us? This life is dominant. We can medicate. We can take stuff. We can pursue sex and money and drugs. But it will not free us. And he says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is Jesus who frees us from the rules that none of us could ever follow anyway. And he makes us righteous. And then he says that it's the law of God that we don't live under the law of God anymore. We live according to the Spirit. And you read that and you go, what does that mean? Is that like the force in Star Wars? Do I just sort of like... It's this ambiguous thing. But we forget that the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit and the Father and the Son, they're not separate. They are God. And the Spirit is the spirit and presence and voice of Christ. And so when we live according to the Spirit, we're living according to Jesus and His promptings and leadings and speaking in our heart and our lives. Let us pray together. God in heaven, thank you that you've come to, for rescue and not for rules, for us to follow rules. God, that is such good news to hear. Because if it's according to us, we're going to break all the rules. Sometimes uh, we're really good at that. I know I am. Thank you, God, that you come for rescue. And that we can come by faith before you. As the woman that was bleeding and she said, God, free me. Who will rescue me from this life of sin and death? Or the prodigal son or the self-righteous son. In their own way, they're crying out, Who will rescue me from this life of sin and death? And I pray for anyone here today. I know there's someone in this room that needs healing. They need, Lord, your touch on their lives. That you are the one that will rescue them. I don't rescue anybody. Jesus, you're the one that has done and always will be the one who does it. Thanks be to you, Lord. For you have rescued us on your behalf, not to save us into a religion, but to save us unto yourself. 
because that is what the heart of a father is perfect. That is what he does. Thank you, God, for your love. You poured out upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand together. Let's say-